So hello, this is We Be Imagining, and I'm Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. I'm here with Selena and Corey from the Home in the Note podcast. This is season, the first episode of season two. Um, I'm really excited. We're going to explore a variety of topics this season, kind of ranging from black studies, sex work, predictive analytics in the child welfare system, of course, um, and other kind of hot topics in the data policy, artificial intelligence, and machine learning world. And then I'm really, this is kind of also kicking us off with a lot more collaboration and bringing many different voices beyond just academics onto the episode. Um, and We Be Imagining is a project of Columbia University's Insight Center and the American Assembly. Um, but with that, I just want to give a chance to both Selena and Corey, if you want to say a little bit about yourselves and, and hoe in the know. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having us on. Um, so I am Selena the Stripper, and uh, so the podcast The Ho in the Know, or Ho in the Know, I don't know why I said The Ho in the Know, uh, it's about <laughs> sex work. It's by sex workers, for sex workers, and all about sex work. Um, and so my kind of conception with it is that I wanted to create something that would create an archival knowledge of sex work and the sex trade. Uh, our history, uh, also, like, so the history from the past, so going all the way back to, I mean, ancient civilizations, you know, because oldest profession and all that jazz, um, but also accumulating the voices of sex workers who are currently working and uh, getting to know the labor through talking to them, um, voicing their experiences and just giving them space to talk about things in a way that only we can really talk to like whenever we're together because there's something different whenever sex workers talk to each other like we don't have to explain things the way that we do whenever we're talking to civilians which is the term that we use to call people not in the sex industry <laughs> so um probably most people listening are civvies uh so the point of the podcast is really to start cultivating this community and history and uh, to have fun doing it. Um, and Corey, if you want to say more, please go on. Yeah. So I joined the podcast kind of recently within the last two or three months. Um, and sort of my goal, I guess, with the podcast was to um, give voice to people who don't usually get to speak up about their lives um, and are sort of just seen as stereotypes. Um, and so it's been really great being on the podcast and being able to do that work. Thank you for sharing that. And I was curious, one of my favorite episodes was the the episode that you guys did on Sally Hemings. But just before we started recording, I was listening to the to the most recent one about the the massage parlor. And just so much of your um, interview style, Selena, reminded me of oral histories because I come from like also an archival um, oral history background. And I was just wondering, did you have training like prior to this in um, oral histories or kind of uh, like grassroots uh, historical preservation or was that something that you just developed in the process of doing the show um it was always just kind of part of my mission with it and I don't have any technical training in this this has really just been me like winging it and kind of figuring it out as I go and just knowing that like I had these interests like I wanted to know more I had a lot of questions about 
uh, other occupations within the sex industry that I was unfamiliar with. So a lot of this just comes from my desire to know and to get to know my community better and just a general intrigue. <laughs> Um, so super cool. And do you feel like a lot of your audience are, are civilians, as you say, or other people who are sex workers or a mix? Or do you have, maybe do you not know who's listening to the show? You know, sex workers are not really a demographic that is particularly mapped, except whenever it comes to like carceral mapping, <laughs> unfortunately. Point. Um, so it's not really clear, but I do get a lot of input in my messages, um, both via the podcast Instagram and um, via my own personal DMs of people who are in the sex industry who tell me that they love the show and they listen to it whenever they're getting ready and it feels like they have a community when sometimes they don't. Um, especially with a lot of online work, there is a bit of a lack of community Um and uh, so a lot of people are looking for that. And um, it's been great to hear from a lot of the sex workers who listen. But I also get a lot of commentary from uh, civilians. Um, also, a lot of my customers tune in, which is another thing. Um, but they, they seem to also enjoy it for different reasons. And it's always a little bit tricky because... Um, I'm always afraid that they'll like me less whenever I'm honest. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm saying some pretty, pretty brutal things at times. I make a lot of fun of men. I make a lot of fun of customers. Uh, and so the fact that they're able to get into it and derive some knowledge from it and not leave hating me uh, has always been a little bit amazing. Well, that's also interesting too. I wonder how many of them support the podcast through Patreon and, and kind of are expanding their initial interaction with you to, to, to support kind of the scholarship of the podcast. Well, that's another tricky thing. And I'm, I know Corey isn't really speaking right now and I'd love to have them speak up, but <laughs> um, so the, the Patreon is uh, largely about my work, which is a little bit separate. Um, I definitely do plug it with the show because it, it does help fund certain things like the equipment and paying for some of the subscriptions and stuff like that. Um, but my Patreon tends to be uh, primarily focused on my written work, which is a whole different body of work. Um, all of my personal accounts, uh, talking about escorting, talking about working at the club. Also, um, my journey from being a producer and seller of sex work to a consumer. Um, so it's, yeah, it runs the gamut of things. So that's tends to be where the money from the Patreon is going and what that's about. Fair. Um, and definitely since you pointed it out, Corey, I want to give you an opportunity kind of maybe what, what, um, drew you to being participating in the podcast and, um, maybe if you could say a little more about, um, what your vision and mission is in, in talking about sex work? Well, um, I was on the podcast as an interviewee um, maybe a year ago, I think. Um, and that's where me and Selena officially first met. And uh, I've like followed Selena's work and really enjoyed um, reading the Instagram uh, uh 
um, stories that they put out. Um, and then sort of when the riots hit, uh, I, I don't know if you asked me or if I asked you, uh, Selena, if I could do an interview on your show, but you asked me and I was actually like very happy. I was like, yeah, um, Corey asked me and I had lost my, uh, former co-host. They moved out of state and I was really just barely holding it together with a podcast. Like I really believe in the work. And, um, then Corey hit me up like kind of out of the blue and was asking if, uh, they could help me like, and they didn't realize that they, they were, you know, helping me in such a big way, but it was like, it was like, a, I don't know. I don't believe in God or anything, <laughs> but it was a godsend. <laughs> yeah. And so I came on and, and did an episode or two, I think mostly by myself and, um, sort of fell in love. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, uh, I was able to do, I was able to just like talk to hoes, which was nice because I don't think there's a lot of platform for us to talk to each other. Um, and so that's really been, I don't know, vindicating, validating all the V words. Um, and so, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's been, it's been really wonderful joining. Well, thank you. And one of the reasons that I was really excited to talk about sex work on the podcast is that a huge percentage of the people who listen to our show are definitely academics. And there's a there's a joke about how disembodying academic work can be that like you you really know where the disconnection is when you see the after party at the conference because no one has any rhythm and nobody's <laughs> willing to dance. Because yes, there's it's not just the ivory tower, but they're used to being so rigid. Um, and so sex work is so, so much the inverse of that in a way, although there's a level of financial calculus that's very much like the academic institution on the flip side. Um, but it would be great if you guys could kind of define, I love the question that you posed in that last episode about not even what is sex work, but what is a sex act and how to define, how to define that. I don't know if you want to guys want to get into some kind of the parameters of how you see that. Of a sex act? And I mean, that's, that is like a really hard thing to pin down, right? Because like, I don't know, lots of like, does it include the orgasm? Does it not include an orgasm? Is it just, can it be just touching? Can it just be looking at each other um, or whoever or yourself? Um, that's a really hard thing to pin down, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um so whenever we're thinking about sex work, I think a lot of people immediately think of uh, prostitution, but sex work is like this big umbrella term that includes everything from uh, cuddlers and phone sex operators, cameras, porn stars, uh, full service sex workers uh, who were formerly known as prostitutes, but that's carceral language. And so we have done a little language switcheroo to uh, honor what people would like to be called. Um, and, you know, everybody in between. So strippers, um, people who are, you know, it's kind of anything like escorts, sugar babies. Um, and so, yeah, so the umbrella term is sex work. And what you provide within there runs the real gamut of things. Um, so, I mean... Corey has some really amazing work in doming that is like 
totally creative and out of the box. I mean, some of the things that they have told uh, or had their subs do is like, <laughs> like whenever I heard, I w- my mind was totally blown. I was like, what? Yeah. Like I do a lot of like racial justice in sex work, <laughs> which doesn't, you know, I don't know if like the average person is like, oh yeah, sex work is racial justice, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, where yeah, I don't know if I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, please tell me. Why. So I do <laughs> like what is like considered reverse racism play, where um, I like enslave white men and have them do menial tasks or have them uh, re reenact like things that actual slaves were put through like during cars or during um uh the middle passage and um so yeah like i had one person like kind of sleep in water to sort of represent how people had to like sleep on boats and get welts Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah and worry about bed sores and disease and yeah, bacteria in the water and all of that. So Corey's an incredible like example of this. Um, but I mean, you know, sex work, what constitutes sex work is so broad. I mean, right now I'm in the land of providing girlfriend experience. And so a lot of that just mimics like a regular relationship, but with money involved. <laughs> so I just get paid to be a girlfriend. Um, and even though I don't identify as a woman or a girl, um, there is the whole drag of gender performance that goes hand in hand with sex work. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I really answered the question <laughs> of what is a sex act. But I think, you know, if we're inclusive of people all over the gender spectrum and all over the sexual orientation spectrum, um, I mean, that varies so widely. Like what a person who's like maybe on the ace spectrum may consider to be deeply sexual and intimate is completely different than, you know, whatever, everybody like different people on different spectrums of things. Um, I, no, yeah. that's really helpful. Go oh, on, sorry. Go ahead. I cut you I've off even part. seen recently a lot of um, sex educators like recategorize themselves as sex workers Um because they're dealing in sex. So I don't know. Well, also I was thinking on the flip side, just, you know, with, with the social distancing during COVID-19 and I know some people still are doing sex work in person, but you know, there's this whole question of when things are being mediated by the digital and maybe there's, there's not even touch, but you're, you know, either, you know, camming or you're doing something over video or, you know, it seems like there's a need to kind of broaden the definition. But I did want to just scroll back to for a second to the racial justice um, uh, uh, role playing. And I'm just curious, are these like white liberals reading like Ta-Nehisi Coast that are like requesting that you treat them like a slave? Or are you like, there's some kind of like negotiation? I'm just trying to understand like the 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 dynamic in which that ends up being the result well with all sex work that i do there is a level of negotiation um but i mean i i think it's people who for the most part do feel some guilt over what has happened to descendants of chattel slavery um sometimes i get people who uh are sort of uh 
a little on the Hotep side in like the like African goddess sort of way. Um, and that's interesting to negotiate considering I am a uh, descendant of chattel slave and not, I don't identify with like my African heritage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're not digging into the pan Africa. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, so it, it sort of runs the gamut of, sort of like why they come to me to do these things. Some of them are like truly masochistic and um, just want to feel that level of pain that comes with like being in chattel slavery. Um, so yeah, it just varies. Um, and I'm curious for both of you, like the, the transition to COVID um had you already been kind of like, what was your relationship to the digital? Were you already reaching out to kind of clientele vis-a-vis um, -vis some kind of online platform? And did that play a bigger role when the shelter and order place um, happened? Or was this kind of, did you feel like you were already a digital native and this is not something that changed your work? Well, I personally did not switch to digital. Uh, I switched to escorting. Um, so I had a handful of clients that I had seen in their like private residence or at hotels at various times uh, prior to COVID hitting. So I had a rapport with them and I had a degree of um, trust in our relationship. And so I uh, whenever COVID hit, I started leaning more into that. So doing more home visits, limiting who I was actually uh, seeing in person to about like four different customers in total. So I just kind of have been like cycling between four people. Um, and that has like largely been the way that I've been able to get through COVID. Um, and I mean, right now I'm in this position where my club has reopened, but it's completely unsafe. Um, you don't go to the club to make good decisions, you know, <laughs> like to be safe. Uh, and so, you know, people are out there turning up. They're like not wearing their masks 100% of the time. It's creating a lot of logistical issues. And then there's the whole like, whenever you get to the back room for a lap dance, whatever happens, happens. And that's always kind of how it is at my club. So it's like, they're not going to enforce social distancing. They're not going to enforce mask usage. Um, it's just kind of like, it's up to the dancer to decide what they're comfortable with. Um, and then there's also all of the pressures of that and then also drinking. So it just doesn't really create an environment that's conducive to safety. So um, I've had to make the decision not to work and to continue leaning into escorting. And I've sort of had to make a bigger transition because I was go-going mostly to make some of my income um, beforehand and there's no parties happening now. So, uh, so I can't do that work. And so I started, I was, I actually started camming when I first started sex work. And so I just like sort of went back to that. Um, but I had, a a stalker <laughs> when, uh, COVID hit. And, uh, so that like stopped for a while and I was sort of in this limbo space of like, I don't really 
know what I'm going to do to make money. And I still really don't know. I'm still very much in a limbo. I was um, fortunate enough to be able to get on unemployment, but I'm, that's running low. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And do you, I mean, Selena, you sound like you've been pretty fortunate and it's interesting the, the, the level of trust that you're able to, to have with those four people at this moment of such financial precarity for so many people. I'm just curious to what degree, you know, either or both of you feel a sense of um, like collective political presence amongst other people who are kind of doing sex work in different domains. Is there a sense that these are things that you're just navigating individually or do you feel like there's a... Uh, I don't know, maybe not a union, but a, a kind of a labor movement question, even clubs ran by um, and for sex workers, or do you, is, does it feel like yeah. you're alone? Um, so maybe I can speak to this a little bit more, but um, so I'm part of Soldiers of Pole, which is an organization uh, trying to lead the movement of unionization of strippers across the United States. And there's a ton of sex work coalitions across the world. So we do some stuff with um, this Polish organization. I think it's like Sex Work Polska. Uh, we do some collaborations with the East London Stripper Collective. Um, we are connected to uh, PDX Stripper or sorry, PDX Stripper Strike in uh, Portland which is another coalition of strippers that are uh, fighting to end discriminatory policies across the United States. And they're doing some really awesome, tricky things. Um, there's also the Chicago stripper strike and there's one in Philadelphia. So all across the United States, the strippers have been forming coalitions and have been doing a number of things, including uh, creating mutual aid campaigns because of the lack of government support. So a lot of people are not... Uh, fully aware or at least somewhat unaware that there was a prurient clause written into the CARE Act, uh, which provided the bailout money for a lot of industries. Um, so sex work businesses were excluded from the uh, SBA loans. And so a lot of small businesses, for example, scammers, were not um, eligible for that kind of uh, loan situation. Um, and there have been numerous instances of sex workers being denied uh, PPA loans um, and, or sorry, PUA loans and uh, some of the uh, workers' comp. Um, so, yeah, so it's just been like, there was this moment where we all lost everything essentially. Like we all had a moment of free fall of like, what are we going to do? We cannot work. We can't do in-person work. Nightlife is not going to open. How are we going to make this work? Um, so that really brought a lot of people together, and we started pooling resources and pulling together like legal information and um, archiving it on our page and on other pages. Uh, we started doing a bunch of fundraisers and distributing money so because people were in free fall. A lot of people were, I mean, and are still facing eviction and homelessness. Um, and even right now, if you look on social media, it's like every day I see 101 Venmo requests from people who are in real dire need. Um, so a lot of that happened, a lot of communication because we had more free time. And also because we had to work remotely, it kind of 
opened up the ability for us to have uh, digital meetings with people in other places. Before we used to meet just IRL, but uh, with COVID, we started reaching out and more people in other places could show up. Um, so we started, you know, building even more from there. And I think it really fomented a lot of the frustrations that dancers had had about the industry for so long. Um, and I know I'm speaking particularly about dancers, but this is, of course, an issue that has like had reverberating effects across all sex work industries. Yeah, I I don't know if I see as much um, um, sort of collective action in every industry that falls under sex work. Um, but definitely uh, Soldiers of Pole, um, PDX, uh, Stripper Strike, uh, and everything that Selena mentioned is happening. And I think they're really pulling, pulling, pulling the uh, ahead and pulling away uh, or, or supporting a lot of the community right now. So, um, yeah. But I'm, so the other, you named a lot of organizations. I'm curious, are you familiar with Hustling Hacking? Yeah, hacking and hustling. Hacking um, and hustling, sorry, yeah. Yeah, they're doing some amazing stuff. I mean, like, they've really led the charge in trying to undo SESTA-FOSTA um, by collecting data in a unique way. Um, and I really want to shout out their methods because a lot of the data collection around sex work is collected by people who have no idea about sex work, have uh, internalized negative stigma around it, and thus the data reflects this. So, for example, one of the statistical things that Hacking and Hustling did uh, was that instead of, uh, you know, creating a causative ideology that, you know, sex work leads to poor mental health they just examined it broadly like what's the deal with like the high number of people with mental health issues in the sex work industry and what they came to realize was that a lot of people with pre-existing conditions were opting into sex work because of the flexibility because of the stability of income because of the payment amounts and all of that um, so people had the ability to do this kind of work remotely uh, in a way that fits their schedule and their abilities uh, at that given time. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't like causative. It wasn't like, oh, sex work is like messing people up. And so, you know, that's why this mental health issues happen. It's like, no, it's like a solution for a lot of people with mental health issues. And that's why there's a lot of people who report disabilities and mental health who are working in the sex industry. So hacking and hustling has done a lot of things like that to examine, um, to, to re-examine the way that statistics are collected um, and to also pose questions that a lot of civilians would not think of asking sex workers um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of the questions previously have had like a negative stint to them um, instead of being neutral or being useful questions, quite frankly. Um, another thing that they've been studying is the number of um, assaults and homicides uh, that have happened uh, to sex workers post the passage of SESTA-FOSTA. Um, and I guess I, I could explain SESTA-FOSTA in a bit, but um, they 
before, you know, sex workers were able to post ads online uh, and vet their clients online. They had a lot of databases that could like blacklist certain clients who had been abusive um, and they could share information a lot more freely. Uh, but with the passage of SESTA-FOSTA, a lot of those resources and databases uh, got shut down. So a lot of predators were back out on the loose to hurt people again without the same protections. And additionally, um, sex workers were not able to, you know, get clients in the same way online using things like Backpage that provided, you know, a free platform for you to post ads and things like that. Um, so now all of this is behind a paywall, which makes it inaccessible to people who are poorer on the spectrum of uh, sex work, which, as we know, tends to be blacker, tends to be trans, tends to be people who are disabled and things like that, you know? Um, so it's behind this paywall, paywall, which means that people are, you know, going back into street-based sex work. People are not able to vet clients in the same way. They're having to take on more risks, which... Hacking and hustling has started to prove is creating like an uptick in homicides and other uh, violent assaults. So um, the data that they're collecting right now is really interesting and really useful, um, albeit totally tragic because, you know, it was not necessary. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that um, such a substantial explanation. And I will say for our listeners who are not familiar with the act, SESTA is the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficker Act, and FOSTA is... Um, Fight actually, Online Sex the- Trafficking Act. Yes, um, Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was the Senate bill. But one of the things that immediately stood out to me when it passed was that it received not just bipartisan support, but support from the Internet Association, which is a D.C. lobbying group um, that is founded by big tech, including um, Twitter, Lyft, uh, Oracle, 21st Century Fox. And kind of here in lies the crux of the issue, which is just not not just that, that yes, there are consensual sex workers and not everybody is just a victim of um, coerced external forced um, sex trafficking, but also that this was used as an entry point to change kind of privacy for all people on yeah, these different right. um, social media platforms. Um, and the Earn It Act as well is like really an attack on encryption and using this Trojan horse of, a, of an issue that just generates such an immediate like visceral emotional yeah, reaction. Yeah, so it's a lot of dog whistle tactics in the naming of these bills that do much bigger things to undermine our freedom of speech and rights to privacy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, SESTA-FOSTA passed, um, in 2018, is it 2018? Yeah, it's 2018. Um, and so a lot of this was orchestrated by anti-sex trafficking groups, uh, Polaris for one, and all of these groups have a variety of biases, and I don't want to... I want to preface this by saying that, you know, sex workers are not for sex trafficking, like clearly, but unfortunately, because of the way that a lot of these laws were created, it creates an unnecessary tension between victims of sex trafficking and consensual sex workers, because we're all looped together into the same, you know, we're all looped together into this issue as being a problem and we're being equally punished and incarcerated uh, for, you know, unnecessarily. This could be a lot better prepared. It could be 
you know, a fine toothed operation where we work collaboratively because who is the best community to point people you know, if we want to say law enforcement, but, you know, fuck the pigs. I'm sorry. But anyway, um, like. No, half the... of our show is dedicated to fuck the pigs. So okay, cool. Just, I don't, I don't know what I can say. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, hypothetically, if we were to work with some law enforcing body, like we would be the best people to point them in the direction of, you know, real victims of trafficking. You know, we are the people on the ground. We are the people working at the clubs. We have relationships with each other. It's not just like a community where nobody knows anybody. Like we know people, we see things happen. Um, So I think that we would be great allies in this. However, because it is goes hand in hand with us being criminalized, like there creates this unnecessary tension of sex workers having to say, well, we're not trafficked, you know, like we're completely different um, and we need to define the different things and you can't just call everything sex trafficking, uh, which is true and valid, but you know, like it's, it be, it's, it's an unnecessary tension. I would too. No, it's an attention I'm I'm yeah. I'm sorry, Corey, to cut you off. I just wanted to make the one point that there's a tension that exists on you know a lot of these other I don't I don't know borderline is kind of an unsatisfying way to describe it, but my research focuses predictive analytics in the child welfare system, and so you know I'm not for child abuse, um, but the problem is that child services you know the vast majority of investigations are initiated around allegations of neglect, which is ostensibly um, a word for poverty and people not having, you know, exactly. enough money to buy like exactly. brand new shoes, et cetera. Or, you know, it's the same thing around uh, various like anti-terrorism laws. Like I'm not for, you know, the World Trade Center bombing or other acts of terror. Um, but largely those are not the people that get identified as by Department of exactly. Homeland Security. No, it just becomes another way to police brown bodies uh, for the most part. And I mean, that's so much of what this is. I mean, a lot of sex trafficking is rooted in an anti-migrant ideology, you know, like people who move to the United States, for example, and opt into sex work, like they can easily be classified as trafficked individuals because they've moved from one place to another and they are in the sex industry, like simply by that fact. There's other things that are looped in like arranged marriages Um, things like that. So it's, and then, you know, it also involves like a high degree of foreign interventionalism. Like we come under the banner of, you know, fighting sex trafficking and we bring our imperialist ideas of what is, you know, what makes sense in our society to other places. Um, And so it just is, yeah, it's, it's completely like rooted in like anti-migrant, um, ideas or anti-immigrants, anti-brown people, um, and you know, it and of course it disproportionately affects people of color. Um, whenever these you know busts happen, it doesn't you know you don't tend to follow up with the people and see like oh like what are they doing now? Like now that we've taken away their primary source of income, you know, like now that we've busted a brothel uh, and freed everybody, quote unquote, like where is everybody now? Um, you know, it's there's a lot of complicated reasons why people get into the sex industry. You know, it may not be like totally gleefully joyful, but for a lot of people, it's something that they're willing to do, um, even if it's not like the most thrilling decision. 
And I think we ignore a lot of the autonomy of people uh, entering into the industry and we don't have their voices. Definitely, definitely. I just, I, I am very aware that I cut Corey no. off. So Corey, I just wanted to give you a chance oh, to jump yeah, in. Oh yeah, no. Um, so there was an example of the way that like the sex worker community, at least in LA, um, sort of like came together very recently to expel a sex trafficker. And like the issue with this though, was that there is no governing body like that we can go to, to be like, Hey, um, there's this person who we know is sex trafficking. Um, how do we deal with this? Instead, it was just like, well, let's just get him out of our community so that he's not doing that here anymore. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was what I wanted to say. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, kind of both of the points that you guys just made there is really is is really critical for those who are the civilians, which I think a lot of our, our audience are. I mean, I guess I don't know, but I, I, I get the feeling that a lot of our audience are civilians. Um, and just could you say a little bit more about I, I think people are somewhat aware that people who are doing sex work are disproportionately impacted by things like facial recognition technology are kind of the forefront of various other surveillance technologies, but are maybe not so aware of kind of the collective protective relational measures that um, vary. It might be different depending on the domain of sex work or venues that it is happening in, but maybe could you lift up some examples of the ways that people um, have been working to protect each other, maybe how they've been impacted by FOSTA SESTA? Well, I think they've been greatly impacted since SESTA FOSTA passed. I mean, there was a um, site, I don't know if it's still up or if it got like re-put up, I think called Verify Him. Um, but there were lots of sites like this where you could go in and look up somebody's name or, or type in their information, whatever information you had, and see if this person had done something in their past or not um, that would make him or that person not a good candidate for you as a sex worker. And those, a lot of those sites like came down. And so it's harder and harder. And even now, like I know with this person specifically, like it was a campaign on Instagram. Um, but a lot of these posts are getting taken down, um, are misclassified as like hate speech or whatever, when it's just us trying to pass information along to one another. Um, so Sestavasta has really impacted the way that we can communicate and warn people about these people in our community that we don't want um, there. Yeah, definitely. And I think on top of that, um, we have like the mass issue of shadow banning and um, general censorship of sex workers online. Um, so we see like pretty much anybody who has a sex work account on Instagram or any of the other social media platforms who is like explicitly out has been uh, either had their accounts restricted, have noticed strange things like errors that happen whenever you're trying to post because uh, you hashtag something. But as soon as you take away a certain hashtag, you're free to put this up. There's certainly, there's suddenly no glitch. Um, so stuff like that, people who like you suddenly become unsearchable, which is essentially shadow banning. Um, and then, you know, the flagging of sex work content that is permitted on uh, larger accounts. So accounts that have blue checks that are verified, they are often able to post things like an OnlyFans link. 
Um, and I just want to, you know, I want to really assert that OnlyFans is how a lot of people are supporting themselves right now through a pandemic whenever we need to social distance, you know. It's something that you can do safely and remotely, consensually on your own, producing your own content for yourself. Um, you have a high degree of autonomy and the money goes directly to you. So it's like a com very viable and like integral source of income for a lot of people. Although I do want to plug Frisk, which is a lot better if you're a sex worker. But anyway, um, you know, like people are not permitted to post their OnlyFans links directly in their bio uh, unless you are, for example, Bella Thorne or a celebrity who has an OnlyFans. I would even. So oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that there's like uh, there's a lot of discrimination in what you're allowed to post. Like you're if you're Playboy, you're allowed to post 95 percent of a nipple. <laughs> but if you're a small account of maybe a thousand or a couple thousand people, that nipple will be taken down lickety split. And it even goes farther than posting the link in your bio. If you have like a link tree or you can't explicitly post like certain things like if you have a chatterbait account or if you have an only fans they can take down that link tree as well yeah i mean we're all constantly like censoring our own words like i don't even post the word sex in my account for the most part if i can avoid it i add a little asterisk instead of the e because i know that certain words are flagging accounts and then you're going to face a lot more friction the more of those words that you have floating around in your uh, in your accounts. So, I mean, we're all like heavily censoring a lot of our language, all of our content, all of our hashtags. And that has just become the norm right now. And I think it's really important because, you know, we're the canaries in the coal mine of civil liberties. You know, we have to censor our, ourselves. We are disappearing. We are facing you know, a lot of government surveillance and scrutiny. Who's to say that you're not next? Precisely. I mean, on the content moderation, we had um, Sarah Roberts, who's at UCLA and recently co-founded with um, Sophia Noble, Center for a Critical Internet Inquiry. And she wrote a book called um, Behind the Screen about content moderation. And right <clears throat> at the height of COVID, she did a piece around almost the complete automation of content moderation, which was having um, kind of large swaths of people automated uh, reported. And so it had this kind of counterintuitive effect that people who were, for example, going against Nazis and saying, you know, you shouldn't have hate speech on the Internet, but were using the word Nazi, were then getting flagged as like being Nazis and perpetuating hate speech. And so I wonder, which is with the hashtag, I'm curious, I wonder how much of that is just kind of algorithmic um, content moderation that's disproportionately impacting certain groups of people. Well, um, I mean, in go ahead. the last year I've had to I've been like sort of editing all of my content that I have on my Instagram so it doesn't include things like black goddess or black dom like specifically but at points you could have dom in your in your uh as a hashtag or you could have some some uh sort of like dom dom whatever so I mean I don't really see that as like being hate speech but that it's being flagged as like hate speech if I put like black dom or it's being flagged as like sex stuff if I put black dom but not dom so yeah I'm there is a lot of like 
algorithmic discrimination. I mean, visually too. I mean, we we also see uh, the censoring of fat bodies. You know, wearing the same amount of clothes as skinny bodies. Uh, we see fat bodies being flagged and taken down at a much higher rate. Uh, we also see a higher rate of people who are involved in various social justice causes being taken down uh, at a higher rate, um, political dissidents. So it's really across the board we're seeing um, a higher degree of censorship. And I just agree with what you said that, you know, uh, sex workers are kind of a canary. I, I kind of hate the phrase a canary in the mind because it kind of supposes that some group of people should be martyring themselves for the rest of everyone else. Yeah. Um, but there's a degree of truth in the sense that, you know, for example, with the Earn It Act, you know, it, it evokes this 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 fear of child sex trafficking, which is legitimate, but ultimately is really about attacking encryption. Yeah, and, and I mean, I also want to say privacy. that, okay, so if you don't know what the Earn It Act, it essentially, so it was detoothed a bit and it became separated into the Earn It Act and the LAED Act. And the LAED Act uh, focuses more on the encryption element and it says essentially that law enforcement... Uh, needs to have a backed door to have access to encrypted data for the sake of criminal cases, um, which is a little bit ridiculous on a number of levels. So firstly, what do we not post, you know, quite conspicuously already on platforms? Like we have enough data out there that pretty much every face is recognizable. I mean, Google can recognize a crowd of like, several thousand people. <laughs> so uh, I don't know why we need that. I mean, and also people are constantly leaving their location data, like running all the time. Um, so there's like a lot of data that's already open and accessible to law enforcement uh, to use uh, instead of having these backdoor entrances to our encrypted data. Um and then, you know, there's also the element of like, well, if this backdoor exists, then who else would have access to it? I mean, we would be so much more open to cyber attack uh, should there suddenly be a backdoor to our encrypted data. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that should be clear and that threat of cyber attack should be, you know, should be a primary consideration if we're worried about security and if we're worried about criminality. Uh, cyber threats should be taken totally seriously. Yeah, sorry, there was just one more thing, which is that, you know, a lot of law enforcement wants a backdoor to these this encrypted data, and they, you know, try and yell at Apple and say, hey, you need to give us access to this phone. But then, you know, not so long after, they figure out a way to have access to the phone. Um, so, yeah, it's it's, again, creating this unnecessary security threat. And then using the whole dog whistle language of, you know, sex trafficking and child abuse. And we need to stop child abuse, sex trafficking by completely putting an end to encrypted data. And I just want to say that a lot of the stats around this are just deceptive. So I think, um, you know, so let's reference something that Representative Ann Wagner of Missouri said. Uh, she said that, the Justice Department estimated that 300,000 girls, specifically girls, not boys and girls, but and just girls in the United States were at risk of being sex trafficked. But 
it turns out that this number uh, was not an accurate Justice Department number, but a number plucked from an out-of-state, decades-old study that had not been peer-reviewed and was later largely discredited. Um, and so instead of 300,000 girls who are at risk, the actual number comes down to about nine to 10,000 children annually, which is not to say that any child should be sex trafficked. We should do so much to protect children and we should definitely work on these situations. But a lot of that comes down to economic inequalities, a lack of protections for migrants, um, or I guess we should call, I'm going to say expatriates. We need to reframe the conversation around people entering into the United States and call them the same terms that we use for Western uh, migrants, okay? So, uh, No, absolutely. No, I'm with you. And then also it just comes down to, I mean, look, I'm against child sex trafficking. I'm against people being enslaved. But I mean, I feel like we should be also at a point in the discourse where we can say like law enforcement is not making us safer. Like yeah. there's a no point at which I'm analyzing these various platforms. And I'm like, you know what the problem really is, is that we need to just make it more permeable to cops. We just had lots <laughs> of cops here. I think like everybody would be so much yeah, safer. It's like the whole good guy with a gun mentality. <laughs> All we need is more good guys with guns. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, but I mean, okay, so I wanted to talk about that figure one more time of nine to 10,000 juveniles in the sex trade. And another interesting thing about this number is that only 15% of these children relied on pimps, which, I mean, if we think about that a little bit, that's interesting. So 85% of the juveniles in the sex trade are doing this on their own for whatever reasons, um, which... I think speaks to a lot of economic things at hand. I think it speaks to, one, the accessibility of this work. It's labor that people can do um, without, you know, really anything else. Um, and it provides like an immediate source of income for people, even kids. Um, but it also brings into question, like, if only 15% are relying on pimps, how do we say that the other 85% are trafficked? Um, so there's like even more questions about the statistical data and the way that we look at these numbers and the way that this conversation is framed in the United States um, and the way that we've used the language and used deceptive statistics to create these policies that have repercussive effects and that have impacted a much larger swath of people. I mean, SESTA-FOSTA has affected the world because... Everybody is using, you know, inter or sorry, United States-based social media, right? Everybody's on Instagram and people are on Twitter and stuff like that. And all of these companies are based in the United States. So they follow United States laws. And that means that their content is also being censored according to U.S. laws. So, um, you know, what happens here has that, you know, domino effect of having a much broader scale effect. <laughs> um, no, thank you for raising that. I mean, it's interesting. Yes, they are U.S.-based companies, but then on the on the flip side, you have content mon moderation largely outsourced to the global south. Um, 
and you have maybe the company's headquarters based here, but there is a question of like, what does it mean for Facebook, not just to be fostering disinformation in places like East Africa or um, other areas where there's kind of like heightened political tensions, but who who is responsible for regulating this when it's actually, they're incentivized towards engagement. They're not incentivized towards anyone's safety or towards the truth. Um, but then it's all very complex because on the flip side, one of the opponents of the Earn It Act is Facebook, right? Because mm-hmm. part of their currency is that we're encrypting kind of people's pers- end-to-end encryption for people's personal messages. And then on the other on the other side, like, are they really keeping people safe when they're um, shadow banning or, you know, rep- yeah. reporting things that's like inappropriate content on the other side? Well, the other thing is because, I mean, what I've read from tech blogs about the Earn It Act is that to enable it, to create this backdoor, they would essentially have to rewrite all of these major platforms to allow for a backdoor because right now it just doesn't make any sense and it doesn't structurally, like it's not structurally possible. So like the amount of money that would have to be thrown into rewriting a lot of these programs is just, you know, it's it would be a huge money sink for these companies, which is probably why they're fighting a bit harder against it than they did with Sesta Fosta. Um, some one tech person was like, you know, comparing it to, you know, we can land a man on the moon, but we can't land a man on the sun. <laughs> um, I don't even know. What does that mean? It's, it's just like talking about the impossibility of creating like of, of programming these things to create like an access to encrypted data that would, you know, be both safe and secure and accessible to law enforcement, but not accept not uh, accessible to foreign agents, you know, like this real like paradoxical backdoor well, it's also a nexus of all these different interests, because I hear that and I also say, like, you know, we're in the age of surveillance capitalism and also all of these all of these platforms that are based in America are also proprietary platforms that are constantly, like, aggregating our data and then, like, exchanging them with data brokers. And so, I mean, in a, in a sense, there there's a level of, like, their self-interest that, and, and concern because... It, you know, the Earn It Act and, and SESTA-FOSTA ostensibly weakened Section 230, right, of the communications bill. And so that that gives them a way that they're not liable for the content that is then being held on their platform. And so that's like part of what's that question is that it's, it has to be someone's responsibility. If it's not the individual's responsibility that's putting it out there, is it going to be the company's responsibility? And so who's governing this? If it is something that's taking place, for example, in, you know, Thailand, but on a platform that was created in, um, you know, Portland and, uh, you know, th- which which nation state is responsible for that when it when it doesn't live within any kind of borders? Mm-hmm. Big questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so I have a lot. I, I have a lot of questions, but with our final minutes, um, is there anything else that you that you feel like is important for for people to know? Particularly, we have a huge percentage of our audience is not just academics, but people on data policy, um, technologists who are thinking about you know kind of co creating socio technical systems with people who have who are on the impact side. Like, what what do you feel like is important for people to know 
um, from each of your perspectives. And I am going to point to Corey <laughs> since I, I really do appreciate perspective, Selena, but I want to hear from you, especially. Um, I mean, there's a paper out. I can send it to you after this interview, but um, there's a paper out on uh, racism in um, censorship online um, that sort of perfectly encapsulates like how we can be doing better um, online. And I think, uh, and the, the crux of it is that racism exists in the algorithm. Um, and so I think once we can acknowledge that and once we can sort of figure out how to not do that, <laughs> um, we can move better. Thank you. Selena, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, I want to say that there are a lot of sex workers who are vocal, who are involved and knowledgeable about policy, have done a lot of research, who um, are have created coalitions, and should definitely always be consulted whenever it pertains to uh, anything sex work related. I think that a lot of these bills did not include consensual sex workers in their crafting and the language around it, in creating provisions to prevent the mass censorship of sex workers. Um, and I think it's important that we consult sex workers in anything about us. So to steal something from the ability movement, uh, nothing about us without us. But I just... You know, it's really frustrating that we're not creating these delineations and that people just, you know, are stuck in the mindset that sex work is bad and that we need to just stop it completely. And that's just not useful thinking. You know, it's like sex work, regardless of what you feel about it, is a vital source of income for a lot of people. And a lot of those people are marginalized people, primarily, you know, a lot. I'm not even going to say primarily, but a lot of people at the most risk are black and are trans and are disabled. And if you care about black, trans, disabled people, you should care about creating protective policies for sex work. Because regardless of how we feel, it isn't going away, you know, like, and advocating for protections for sex workers doesn't mean that you are endorsing sex work. Like, because I advocate for housing for the homeless doesn't mean I advocate for homelessness. I'm just saying that people deserve homes. People deserve to be protected. They have basic human rights. And I think that same logic can be applied to the way that we think about sex work, regardless of our feelings, regardless of the emotional like whiplash that some people have with it. It is happening. A lot of people are participating. It is what they do to eat and to support their families. And Feelings aside, we deserve to treat sex workers as a protected class. I think that, you know, I hope eventually lawmakers will consider sex workers to be a protected class of people just because of the disproportionate amount of violence and discrimination we face. Um, and I think that that can lead to the broader issue of decriminalization, which is what we need in the United States. Whenever we have decrim, uh, we can start having better protections for people because we should not be criminalized for doing whatever we need to to survive. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to have the the first episode of season two of We Be Imagining with the both of you. Um, and I really encourage everyone to check out the Home in the Know podcast on 
I guess you guys are on every major platform where podcasts are found. Yeah. And that's H-E. So it's like Hukes in the Nukes. H-E-A-U-X in the K-N-E-A-U-X. And check us out. Yeah, definitely take a listen. I really enjoyed it. And I'll definitely recommend the um, Sally Hemings episode. Um, but thank you for for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. And you can also check out We Be Imagining podcast wherever major podcast platforms are found. Um, and please write to us. We want to hear from our listeners about this episode and more. We're definitely open to, to more suggestions for who we should have on this season as we're doubling our frequency of episodes. Uh, write to us at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. And that's it, y'all. Thank you.